This is Johnny Gould's Jewish State. North America, Europe, the Commonwealth, the whole of the Middle East. The world is listening. Today's guest walked the corridors of Downing Street Power as recently as 2017. He's the former Joint Chief of Staff of Theresa May's Premiership, now author and columnist Nick Timothy. Once you think that you are set on a course of inevitable progress, then people who disagree with your view about the end point must be irrational. They must be nefarious. They must be, they're stopping this inevitable and, you know, positive change towards this ever more perfect society. Nick and Fiona Hill paid the price for Theresa May's poor election performance, which led to a hung parliament after she'd inherited David Cameron's slim Commons majority of 2015. But as she lived to fight another day, her administration, both wounded and doomed, struggled on through votes of confidence and Brexit deadlock. And Nick reveals what happened to him was both brutal and chastening. I made my own mistakes in that campaign uh, with the manifesto I co-authored. The hostility and and very personal nasty campaign against me as an individual was uh, was a really chastening and brutal experience, which I don't think uh, I can fully fully convey uh, in this interview. Amid the mudslinging of Labour anti-Semitism, he was caught in the crossfire. New Statesman's political editor Stephen Bush accused Nick of Tory anti-Semitism in an attempt at deflecting from the very real problem in Corbyn's party. Bush accused Nick's speechwriting of blundering into racially charged rhetoric, absurdly going on to compare his work with Jackie Walker, expelled even during Corbyn's leadership. He sets the record straight. I had an email from a rabbi I know shortly after that row saying that he knew that I was philo-Semitic, uh, which, to be honest, wasn't even a phrase I'd even heard of before then. <laughs> uh, and the reason he did that was because, you know, I, I have spent many years working in uh, security policy and uh, an education policy and and have always been uh, uh, friends of the Jewish community. And as indeed uh, we're doing this interview today um, on the birthday of Israel, a uh, big supporter of Israel. take the unusual step of telling you in advance where Nick's comments on this are in this episode. Scroll forward to around 44 minutes and 20 seconds. Although I don't recommend it, I did make the decision not to put that question in front of this, which if I'd done so would have unfairly framed what turned out to be a really free-flowing conversation on so many big ideas. So have a listen and get to know the man. I had no idea lockdown would provide such chances to extend this podcast beyond its original contours to Berlin with Deborah Feldman, author of Unorthodox, the book which spawned the Netflix smash, to Tel Aviv for two more small screen stars, Fauders Doron and Captain Ayub, Leo Raz and Itzik Cohen. The Red Sea spies with Mossad commander Danny and to the White House for the architect of Donald Trump's deal of the century, Jason Greenblatt. If you haven't heard those interviews yet, scroll down the list of episodes, listen and subscribe and tell your friends. But now it's off to Geneva. 
when politicians place freedom as a value above all others, that is when they start to become ideological. Because in reality, human values and interests are conflicting all the time and will do so always because that is the nature of life. And so if you put freedom as a value above all others, then you are damaging other values such as security or solidarity or or justice or many others. Nick Timothy is like me, a born and bred Brummie who has imbibed into his own politics and beliefs the essence of Birmingham's own evolution into the 19th century's foremost industrial city. He's the author of Remaking One Nation, The Future of Conservatism, and he cites one of Birmingham's greatest figures, Joseph Chamberlain, as his political hero. If you've seen what remains of Bourneville, the suburb around our world-famous Cadbury's factory, you'll understand his own communitarian conservatism. And while Karl Marx reacted to the burgeoning industrial revolution by insisting the means of production should be in the hands of the workers and his accompanying and deeply unpleasant views of huckstering as the worldly religion of the Jew, Joseph Chamberlain was laying the foundation stones of Birmingham, the best-run municipal corporation before any other. Joe Chamberlain is actually my political hero, where he transformed the family business into one of the most successful firms of his day. And he was a pretty enlightened employer and cared for his staff and gave them good conditions to work in and so on. But he, uh, I think it was partly that experience uh, that led him into politics and he became a campaigner for free universal education and then became the mayor of the city where in just a short space of time completely transformed the place uh, where it was, you know, dank, dirty, pretty insanitary and unsafe. And he municipalised the water and the gas and rebuilt large parts of the city centre. And kind of unbelievably these days, the city was described as the best governed in the world. So, and then he went into Parliament. There's no turning back for Nick. He's not going to replace Dominic Cummings and he's not going to rejoin the squad either. I can't do it, obviously, he says, but I genuinely have no idea who they could replace him with. It would be better if Downing Street had six really, really good people rather than one overworked, centralising big brain. Now, here's Nick Timothy. This is Johnny Gould's Jewish State. For those who listen. For those who are willing to listen. Thanks for having me. Now, you're a Telegraph columnist now and author of Remaking One Nation, The Future of Conservatism. And you've won plaudits from both left and right as you grapple with geopolitical shifts, cultural changes and economic uncertainty, particularly since you've written the book. Uh, Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's been quite nice getting some of the, the reactions that I've had to the book so far. Certainly the reviews have been, on the whole, pretty positive. What I'm trying to do with the book, I'm trying to trace the problems that we have in our politics today back to some of the original ideas that are behind the policies that got us to where we are. So I'm trying to examine the flaws in philosophical liberalism and the ways liberalism has mutated into these kind of ultra ideological extreme forms across the left, right and centre. And instead, what I'm trying to do is uh, explain how conservatism that is real conservatism, not the kind of ideologically, economically liberal 
conservatism can overcome that ideology, become a bit more communitarian, and by doing that, try to remake the country, make it more unified, and in the language of traditional conservatism, make us one nation once again. Now, when I studied government and politics back in the mid-80s, it was the era of Thatcher in her pomp. she just won the Falklands conflict. She'd just beaten, I mean, thrashed Michael Foote in the 1983 general election with a 142-seat majority. And I learned something called adversary politics, uh, the idea that a very successful set of governments that wins election after election produces increasingly short-termist policies as it continues down its ideological drive. And we've had two very pronounced governments, haven't we, in the 80s and 90s and into the noughties. We've had Thatcher and Blair. Is this the seeds with which the problems you're grappling with in your book come from, do you think? These two very diverse forms of adversary political theory. Yeah, I think so. In, in, in a sense, they demonstrate the two different sides of liberalism that I'm talking about, I suppose. So on the one hand, on the right, you tend to have this kind of ultra-liberal agenda of market fundamentalism that believes in the invisible uh, hand of the market, and that if only the state would just get out of the way, then prosperity would follow, which often that can be the case. Markets can function quite well without uh, any kind of intervention in some circumstances. But, you know, obviously what we've seen in in the regions of, of the UK uh, has been uh, rapid deindustrialization. And as deindustrialization has happened, we've seen social and economic decline where supply chains have suffered, the social fabric has suffered, there's been a loss of civic confidence, a loss of institutions, and so on. And so we haven't seen sort of recovery in those places. We've, we've often seen decline. And then on the other hand, on the left, you have this kind of agenda of cultural liberalism where there's an almost open borders mentality to immigration control. There's a lack of interest in, in trying to promote the integration of different communities. There's, a, I think, a disrespect to the group that has suffered most from the kind of deindustrialization that I've just described, which is the white working class, which is in very profound crisis now. So I think the two sides have basically created uh, significant problems in our country, economic and cultural. Those two crises then interrelate with one another in quite complicated ways. And that's why I think we're at the, at the political point that we are right now. Nick, you are talking about my childhood here. And I am very much a brummy, but I also have... Uh, a kinship with the black country too because I started my professional life in Wolverhampton. Um, my dad worked for 40 years in Walsall. Um, I know the black country as well as I know Birmingham and you are kind of outlining um, what has happened to our region. Really it started towards the end of the Thatcher years and deconstructed massively without reinvestment following. Yeah I think that's right. I mean we have fairly similar upbringings. I'm also from Birmingham and grew up in the 1980s. And my dad spent most of his career working in manufacturing, which uh, which declined terribly in, in the West Midlands and other parts of the countries in the 80s and 90s. I mean, I think, you know, some of this is about the domestic policies that our politicians have pursued. But it also relates to something that's going on in the wider world. And, and I think with 
the coronavirus crisis, we will see increasing questions about the model of globalization that has been allowed to develop over time. And and normally, I think, with the liberalization of international trade, you quite often, through history, you see that some groups, relatively small groups, will lose out as, as trade is liberalized uh, because you know, foreign competitors might do things more efficiently or cheaply. But those numbers of people who lose out have tended to be quite small. And I think what's quite strange about the point of time that we're at at the moment is partly thanks to, I think, the scale of the rise of Eastern economies and partly thanks to the speed with which technology is changing. The number of people losing out from globalization and the way production networks have moved across borders the numbers of people losing out are, um, has grown quite significantly. And we're talking about maybe 30, 40% of Western workers feeling a massive squeeze with stagnant incomes for more than a decade, mid-skilled jobs disappearing, people doing the kind of work that is lower skilled than they've been trained to do. And that's happening not just in Britain, but it's happening around the West too. Uh, and I think that that is also one of the uh, one of the drivers of the problems that we're seeing. A truly global jobs market there defined. And uh, I guess this is where the political and cultural crisis in Western democracies has formed. How do you unpack that particular idea in the book, Nick? I try to separate the economic and the cultural crises and I try to go back to the the policies that have got us to where we are, the kind of philosophical assumptions that lie behind those policies. And and what I argue is, while many of our politicians kind of argue that the state of the world is this kind of natural thing that can't really be challenged and that their policies are, to quote Tony Blair, what works, uh, they are actually ideological in themselves and that liberalism has this ideological side to it and that there is a different way of doing things and what i say is uh, we don't want to throw liberalism out of the window the sort of the the core tenets of liberalism are what has made the west prosperous and stable and peaceful but we do need to have a bit of a correction away from the politics and economics of liberalism and a change that is slightly more communitarian where we value family and community and institutions and the nation state itself more than we have and and actually i think i call it a communitarian correction because it's important that you know we don't go too far this is about correcting the way of government and i think one of the interesting things is this could actually come from the center left you know there's a real uh, rich tradition in labor party history of uh, people like clement attlee and ernest bevan who would have been interventionist and uh, and and were in favour of redistribution and so on, but completely took it for granted that you would believe in a strong national defence and you would promote community and nation and so on. But obviously, I'm a conservative, and so my uh, so my book is mainly about how the Conservative Party can move the country into that slightly more communitarian direction. Because you are a believer in personal freedoms like a, a, a traditional conservative is, but uh, as you just mentioned, a responsibility to community too. So, Nick, can you define for us this term civic capitalism? <laughs> yes, yeah, so without wanting to uh, be too romantic about the past, because there are plenty of uh, shortcomings, we used to have uh, a model of capitalism where you had business owners, business senior business managers and so on, 
uh, who were rooted in their communities, who understood that their employees were coming from the you know the surrounds of the the factory or the firm, and that therefore they had a duty to to their community um, and indeed to their country that that went beyond their duty to uh, to shareholders. And so um, certainly you had uh, great acts of philanthropy. You had employers involved in education and and training of local workers. And I think for a variety of reasons, that sense of civic capitalism has declined over the years. I think it's you know, maybe partly uh, down to things like uh, the decline of uh, what academics sometimes call countervailing power, but is basically about the the power of uh, the workforce, whether that's through trade unions or whatever. It's also partly about the way in which the ownership of companies has changed. So. Uh, you know, the nature of shareholding has become much more dispersed, which makes it much harder to hold company executives to account for what they do. And it's also partly about this model of globalisation where, you know, I think half a century ago, if a British company improved its its productivity through innovation and became more competitive and uh, made greater profits, then then everybody would share in that from the the shareholders, the the skilled uh, managers, the you know the leadership team, but also the the guys who worked for the company on the shop floor. These days, because of transnational production networks, it's not just that the lower skilled jobs don't get a share in it; it's that they don't get a share in it at all uh, because uh, because those jobs have since moved uh, to other countries. So you have. Uh, you have the senior management teams based in the West, you have the vet skilled positions like research and development and the sort of marketing and things like that staying in the West. But the people who actually produce uh, the goods that are being sold are actually employed elsewhere. And so and so there's now, I think, this disconnect between uh, between the the um, the kind of executive classes, if you like, and uh, and and the workers. And what we need to do is to try to build a more responsible and more civic capitalism where companies play a greater role in in things like the education and training and reskilling uh, of workers in their local communities. And so there have been tectonic social shifts which really seem to have proved unstoppable over the last 20 years. Is solidarity among a working class actually now impossible in an era of borderless identity politics yeah i think solidarity is actually one of my favorite words uh and i remember as a as an advisor um inside government trying to use the word solidarity and and having uh certain conservative advisors and ministers say good we can't use that that's a left-wing word yeah it's a bit lech Wałęsa, um, isn't it uh, but i think it's absolutely <laughs> well, I mean, Black Valesa is a, a great figure. I think it's a really important word. And actually, to me, it's about what citizenship means. We have some rights as citizens, but we also have obligations to one another. Uh, and and solidarity means accepting, acknowledging, even relishing those obligations and doing more for others and understanding that you know our individual lives can improve as the life of the community can improve. When politicians place freedom as a value above all others, that is when they start to become ideological. Uh, because in reality, human values and interests are conflicting all the time and will do so 
always because that is the nature of life. And so if you put freedom as a value above all others, then you are uh, damaging other values such as security or solidarity or, or justice or many others. And, and, and what I'm trying to say is uh, we need to put, we need to value freedom. Of course we do. Freedom is important, but it needs to be placed alongside other values and solidarity is, is for sure one of them. This is probably the most eloquent argument for voting leave that I've heard. It commands great respect amongst the 17.4 million people who maybe cannot articulate these ideas but you give them a courage to do so. And I think because of our backgrounds and what we perceive to have seen and how we've both come down to London from Birmingham and watched our old region decline and replaced with something else slightly less satisfactory, um, this is probably... It didn't take me very long to separate my love of Europe and separate it from the... <laughs> you know, the European Union as a, as a government. People seem to make the mistake that the European Union as a political entity is the demonstration of uh, European culture. I mean, I, I emphatically agree with what you say about Europe. I mean, I mean uh, <laughs> I'm sitting here doing this interview with you from Geneva, and I'm actually a, a massive lover of everything spanish um so i um so i sort of i you know i love uh i love european and culture and europe's different cultures and i find it very frustrating when it's sometimes argued that to be a eurosceptic in a political sense is to somehow be a europhobe in a kind of cultural and bigoted sense which uh, i think is genuinely not the case for you know the overwhelming majority of of leavers and, and leavers who voted uh, uh, to leave for all sorts of different reasons, but not that, I think. Uh, and if, I, I mean, I think if, if this book does manage to provide uh, a coherent rationale for, uh, you know, why many of us voted to leave or why leaving the European Union uh, can be a positive change in Britain's national life, then then I would be, I would be thrilled by that. That's, um, uh, that's I suppose one of the major aging factors for, for writing it. So, you're a leaver. Your old boss, Theresa May, wasn't. The new governor, Boris, is, in inverted commas, or it certainly has proved to be so. Is he nearer your philosophy, or don't you know where he stands? How influential can your book and ideas be, albeit as part of the previous Conservative administration be in this particular uh, administration led by i was going to say boris johnson but perhaps it's being led by dominic cummings <laughs> well i mean i would always uh i would always advise people to remember that uh it is prime ministers and ministers who are in charge and who make the decisions and however influential advice are ultimately it is about the big boss the prime minister i think there has been a there's been a shift in politics underway uh, for a certain time now, so so I think as as cultural issues have become more important, the core of Labour's vote has changed, and and it is now predominantly sort of in university towns among public sector workers, and in the in the big inner cities, and um, as cultural issues have come more to the fore, 
So Labour have lost, I think, um, uh, large numbers of their old core vote, which is the kind of provincial sort of white working class. But I think what what has started to happen in the Tory party is that the, the party has kind of realised uh, that A, cultural questions need to be answered, uh, and is, I think, trying to find its own way of, of, of answering them. Uh, but B, there is actually a big political opportunity for the party uh, caused by this decline in support uh, for Labour among the old working classes. You know, Warsaw now looks like uh, slightly more propitious uh, ground for Conservatives than sort of parts of sort of Surrey and Hampshire. The Conservatives will probably come to rely on sort of provincial, more working class voters uh, increasingly as time goes by. And what that does, I think, is is cause conservative politicians to uh, change the way they look at the world. You know, Boris's uh, coalition of voters that won him his majority is going to have that coalition of voters is going to have far less patience with a kind of neo Thatcherite uh, sort of state shrinking, budget cutting uh, kind of agenda, and he's going to be much more interested in quite practical things about how we can try to get new industries in their communities, new uh, jobs, new training for their kids, um, and and good public services. And I think none of that really points in the direction of of the kind of politics and economics of liberalism and individualism, and more in the direction of a more interventionist uh, uh, kind of conservatism, a conservatism that has a much more open mind about uh, the role of government, uh, that needs to think much more creatively about uh, how we revive community, and yet still reflects a belief in, you know, individual freedom, and still reflects a belief in market economics, but tempers those things against the importance of community and good government too. From Kensington to Workington, quite a coalition of people, and I'm going to. Uh, distill this down to the idea that you don't like globalisation very much. So how do we stem it? Will COVID-19 and Brexit actually do it for us anyway, Nick? Well, I think I wouldn't quite put it like that, because I think, I mean, you know, in the modern world, we are inevitably interconnected. And and coronavirus, I think, is quite a good example, um, whereby, you know, yes, um, interconnectedness means that people travel and the virus is spread very rapidly around the world. But also, there's an unprecedented global effort by research teams, I think everywhere, um, trying to work out desperately ways of treating this virus, uh, the way you know, ways of trying to develop a vaccine. Um, and there's a lot of collaboration and, and sharing of information. So the coronavirus experience, I think, uh, so it points in two different directions, really. One is uh, how do we try to increase uh, state capacity, national resilience, ways to protect ourselves? And that may mean that things like supply chains become shorter, closer to home. Businesses might try to make sure that their production networks are in parts of the world that are more resilient. National governments will probably say uh, we can't be so exposed to risk from one particular place like um, you know, as as we are with China. Uh, so it's going to change the world in all these ways, but it still also tells us that that we are inter- interconnected and we are interdependent. So there will be ways in which we need to look at institutions to help 
us with our kind of collective security against all sorts of different risks. So in the recent past, if anybody's tried to question the exact model of globalization or the nature of globalization, they were told that um, they were just being unrealistic, that it was it was stupid to even question it. I think Tony Blair said you might as well question whether autumn follows summer. Uh, globalization in its existing form is just a fact. Uh, but that's not true because policy and national governments um, can shape that through the creation of institutions and national, uh, sorry, international policies and so on. So, and I think this is one of the arguments I make about about liberalism because uh, liberalism, on one hand, can simply mean a kind of pluralism, a commitment to one another that we know we're all a bit different, and therefore we have, you know, we want to tolerate different ways of life and different views and that that is the sort of the good side of liberalism i think the other side of liberalism is it, it tolerates difference uh, and it tolerates pluralism as a means of progress because the trial and error those things allow means that we get a an ever improving society and the danger of that is that once you think that you are set on a course of inevitable progress then people who disagree with your view about the end point must be irrational. They must be nefarious. They must be, they're stopping uh, this inevitable positive change towards this ever more perfect society. And I think the people who have questioned globalization in the past uh, have been treated as that. They're sort of, they're, they're, just, they're just stragglers holding, holding back progress. Um, and I think w where we are with the world right now, we have this opportunity to ask slightly more profound questions about the way international trade works, what international institutions we should have, how the existing institutions work, and whether we in Western countries have been naive about the way we've tried to handle uh, states that are threatening to our interests and values in ways we hadn't realised before. We shall talk about China in just a moment. Uh, you served as... Joint Downing Street Chief of Staff alongside Fiona Hill to Theresa May until your resignation in the wake of the general election of 2017. Nick, that was probably, good or bad, the moment that you were thrust onto the national stage, the platform with which you could present your ideas to the wider world. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of funny. I mean, I you don't remember the exact point at which... Um, my name started to be mentioned in newspapers and things like that. So I think I think I I remember my my profile uh, kind of grew in the way that you boil a frog and sort of you know the temperature sort of slowly rises and you sort of don't really notice it. Um, and and then of course you know in Downing Street it, and uh, one of the principal advisors to the PM there's a lot of interest in you and. All of a sudden, there were you know newspapers sending investigations teams to sort of um, go through everything about my childhood and uh, and and interviewing old neighbours and things like that, which is very strange. Um, so it's kind of invasive and pretty strange feeling, to be honest. Especially with being an advisor, you don't. It's not like being an elected politician. You haven't actually chosen to put yourself into the public domain like that. I mean, generally speaking, advisors are fairly anonymous figures. And so my profile had risen to a certain degree, and it was never something I was very comfortable with. I mean, I never, certainly never courted that kind of thing in number 10. And I always, I always felt that, however positive, the sort of profiles and so on, uh, the more I was being built up, the, the more I would be um, 
uh, people would try to bring me down in the future. And I sort of had no idea sort of how brutal that experience would be because then obviously in the 2017 election when things didn't go well um, and, uh, and you know, frankly, the campaign was uh, run very poorly um, and I made my own mistakes in that campaign uh, with the with the manifesto I co-authored. Um, the um, the the sort of the host the hostility and and very personal nasty um, uh, sort of campaign against me as an individual was uh, was a really chastening and brutal experience, um, which uh, you know I don't think. I don't think uh, I can fully fully convey uh, in this interview, um, but it's um, it, you know it's pretty bad for, for sort of physical and mental health and so on. Um, but you know that's that's sort of three years ago now, and you get through things like that, um, and you learn a lot about it. Probably become a bit more uh, cautious, <laughs> but I think. But you're right that I, uh, the profile, I suppose, helps in a certain respect. That I have this opportunity to to write and make arguments, and people know who I am, and there's a there's an opportunity for good in doing that. Uh, calling an election when David Cameron had got the Conservative Party a workable majority, and then being left with a hung Parliament, um, really hamstrung Theresa May, and was the beginning of the end of her career, which took a very, very long time uh, to end, and end it did with uh, Boris Johnson replacing her and the rest, as they say, is history. I've always thought that a general election and calling one um, should be taken extremely seriously, perhaps more seriously than political mandarins uh, should consider, because it's a kind of way of having a revolution in a country without anyone killing each other. And... Just observing this from the outside, Nick, um, there was a terrible political bloodletting from the 2017 general election. And I'm just asking, perhaps, in your mind looking back, that actually calling a general election to increase Theresa May's majority to get Brexit done as as she did, and it failed, actually is a salutary lesson to many, many uh, governments of the future to treat elections and the people who vote in them with more respect. Well, I think, yeah, I mean, I certainly think that calling an early election uh, should never be a decision that is entered into lightly. And I don't think we did, in fact. We actually spent quite a long time talking about it internally. And in many ways, that was one of the problems. The election ended up being called too late. I mean, I think the truth is, you said that David had won a working majority. And in normal times, you would say that that's right. But he won a working majority. There was only about a dozen, remember. And then the the Brexit referendum happened and the country voted to leave. And what Brexit did was cut through the coalitions that political parties are. So the Tory party was badly split. The Labour party was badly split, both in Parliament and among the party's voters. And so it was never really feasible, to my mind, that she would be able to... Uh, to negotiate a deal, both to get out of the European Union and then to agree a future trading relationship with the majority that she had, uh, and that was why, and that was why an election, I still think, was necessary. Uh, the problem, I think, was not in holding the election. The problem was in pretty much every element of its execution. Uh, so uh, you know, it was held too late. 
Uh, it went on to the strategies, rather, because I think, in effect, we had two conflicting strategies ongoing at the same time. All went wrong. You know, her performance on the campaign was pretty poor. The manifesto that, as I, I co-wrote, blew up because people didn't like the social care policy. And so, and so, the problem was in the execution of the of of the election. Uh, rather than in calling it. And maybe I think one further problem with it was that maybe we failed to articulate exactly why it was necessary, because uh, certainly by the time when there was an election in 2019, the country knew the kind of parliamentary game-playing that lots of MPs were engaging in. They knew the way that Parliament was trying to thwart Brexit. And we knew that those things would happen. But back in 2017, I'm not sure the public knew that was the reason why we needed to have that election. Do you speak to Theresa May these days? Uh, No, we're not in touch these days. Is it true, Nick, that you shaved your very big Rasputin beard off to escape being recognised in the street? Because I have to say, your pictures... um, beardless make you look really quite different <laughs> uh I, well i think that was one of the very strange things about uh about the experience in downing street and also in the period afterwards where um obviously you know, when i was in downing street people would, would approach me uh in the street but i mean only in fairly sort of limited places like around westminster where there were lots of uh you know, political obsessives or around by tory party conference and that kind of thing and then after the election, when my, I think my face was plastered uh, everywhere, uh, there would be sort of occasions where you'd, I'd, you know, I'd be trying to meet a friend for a cup of tea or whatever, uh, that kind of thing, which, to be honest, at that, at that point was uh, kind of the last thing I needed, which was what led to the shaving off the beard and, uh, and uh, trying to return to a, a bit of anonymity. And you look good for it, uh, even though perhaps you've got a bit of a beard back now. Well, certainly my mother says it knocks 20 years off me. (laughs) Well, we all listen to our mums. Uh, Now, in 2015, you mentioned in an article uh, that the government was selling out our national security to China. uh, And those words appear extremely apposite now, that China was effectively buying Britain's silence on allegations of Chinese human rights abuse and opposing China's involvement in sensitive sectors such as Hinkley Point C. And, of course, since then, we've had... Uh, 5G being installed. Uh, you criticised the Prime Minister and the Chancellor, Cameron and Osborne, for selling our national security to China. And you assert that the government seemed intent on ignoring the evidence and presumably the advice of the security and intelligence agencies. Your moment, five years, in that article has now arrived, Nick. <laughs> yeah, I think, I mean, I've been, I've been a China sceptic for quite a long time. Uh, I mean, I, spe- I spent between t- 2010 and 2015 working in the Home Office, um, which is obviously the department responsible for national security, among other things. Um, and I think if you um, if you have worked in national security and you have seen uh, what the Chinese strategy is uh, on different levels, uh, then I. I think it's very difficult not to emerge from that with a fair degree of scepticism about China's role in the world, but also about Britain's policy towards China uh, for the last many years. I mean, it's quite clear that China steals industrial secrets from companies around the West, uh, including in Britain. 
it breaches, therefore, its responsibilities as a member of the WTO. It sets debt traps for companies all around the world. So it very generously uh, does things like build uh, ports in certain developing countries. And when those governments can't afford certain repayments, the Chinese uh, forgive the debt, but on the condition that they can use the ports for certain purposes, including often military purposes, uh, increasingly abusing international institutions. We've seen the way in which it's manipulated the World Health Organization. It's doing something similar with the United Nations um, on different levels. And it's investing in technologies that allow it to, to play a part in Western telecommunications infrastructure, which effectively allow it to use our own communication systems to, to, to steal our industrial secrets. And it's investing in Britain in our critical national infrastructure, in our energy sector, in a way that means we will be quite dependent on China for years to come and will allow it to put pressure on us uh, when it comes to things like votes in the United Nations and so on. So it's about, it's basically trying to build up geopolitical leverage over us. And, and I think we've been very foolish uh, to allow ourselves to be drawn in in this way. I remember um, there was a meeting of very senior ministers in the early, um, in about, I think probably about 2012, where the concerns of the security services were presented to those ministers about what China was up to. And the response was pretty cynical in the words of one of the attendees, the Chinese are going to do all of these things to us anyway, so we might as well take the money. Um, and that, I'm afraid, has been the the truth of the relationship with China for, for several years now. Nick, I'm just trying to surmise some of the headline ideas that you're presenting in this interview. Um, would it be fair to say that, uh, you know, he might not have the nicest table manners and he may produce ridiculous news conferences that make him look a bit foolish, but that Donald Trump is barking up the right tree policy-wise in terms of globalization and challenging China and from the platform of being currently the world's most powerful nation economically, the United States? Well, I mean, I'm, I'm not actually a supporter of Donald Trump's, and I find the choices that American politics keeps throwing up for its face is pretty depressing in truth. But I think there are a couple of things that he quite correctly struck on. Uh, one was actually in the way that he won his election, where he, I think he identified, actually one of the things I argue in my book, which is that there's a kind of utilitarian trap, as I call it, in Western policymaking, which basically you throw all of these numbers into uh, a cost-benefit analysis uh, with, uh, with a whole heap of assumptions about what's good and what's bad. And you produce these impact assessments that say, overall, in completely net terms, policy A is, uh, is marginally good for the country, and therefore we must adopt it. Even if that policy has very significant costs for particular regions, particular um, groups of people, particular industries, and so on. And and whereas the Clintons had made the kind of establishment argument that free trade makes everybody richer, and it was Bill Clinton who allowed China into the WTA, remember, Trump, I think, realized that actually uh, trade with China was causing huge damage to certain parts of the American 
economy. I think some of the, I think the statistics are that something like 60,000 American factories have closed since China was allowed to trade on WTO terms. And many of the, vote, the votes that he won that took him to the White House uh, can be found in, in the states where that happened. And he's also taken this position vis-a-vis China. Now, I think in certain respects, he's done it in a reckless way. Uh, he's unpredictable. He's quite erratic. I don't think defunding the World Health Organization is a good idea. I think that probably just actually makes doing that kind of thing with international institutions just makes it more likely that they will be dominated by the Chinese and and other states. But I think he's certainly right that uh, that the West needs to change its policy towards China pretty rapidly. Uh, he's been doing it on a sort of trade war level for a couple of years, but. You know, what coronavirus, I think, is prompting is the world looking at China and saying, do we want to be quite so dependent and reliant on on this regime? And so you've got the Japanese government find, uh, providing financial incentives for its businesses to, to move production away from China. I think the Americans have actually just introduced a load more new trade regulations uh, that make it harder for American businesses to prop up um, certain Chinese tech companies with American knowledge and technological know-how. So I think he he's hit on a couple of things, but I wouldn't I certainly wouldn't advocate the sort of Trump worldview. That's a very uh, that's a very very good answer. Um thank you. I really appreciate that. Um Now a couple of years ago you were forced to tweet the following Throughout my career, I've campaigned against anti-Semitism, helped secure more funding for security at synagogues and Jewish schools, fought to lift the cap on faith schools, and supported Israel. Accusations and insinuations against me are as absurd as they are offensive. There was much coverage on the uh, journalistic left. Um, uh, when you were accused of dredging up anti-Semitic conspiracy theories after contributing to an article which claimed that George Soros supported a secret plot to thwart Brexit. So this, is, this relates to a newspaper column I wrote uh, back then, which came about because George Soros had invited some Conservative Party donors um, uh, to his house and tried to persuade them to give large sums of money to a campaign called Best for Britain, which was trying to stop Brexit and in the course of trying to stop Brexit said it was prepared to bring down the Conservative government. And obviously these Conservative donors were not very happy with what they heard and so and so brought the presentation to me and said, what can we do with this? Uh, so I, I, so I, I wrote um, my weekly opinion column about what this strategy was and in fact, actually, over the course of uh, the next couple of years, the things that I was warning about in that column, uh, in terms of the way this campaign was going to try to stop Brexit, I think were borne out because it was such a newsworthy thing. The the my newspaper, the Telegraph, um, put it on the front page, and I think we have to remember the context in which this was happening. I mean, firstly, the country was incredibly divided about Brexit. Uh, but second, to its shame, the Labour Party was um, engulfed in continuous um, anti-Semitism scandals. And my personal uh, understanding of what happened was uh, was that it was it was quite a convenient opportunity for certain people to uh, to claim that the way the newspaper 
uh, wrote up the story was anti-Semitic was because they were trying to deflect from problems with anti-Semitism on the left, which we all know were real. And I think I should probably leave it at that, other than to say, um, I have, <laughs> I had a, I had an email um, from a rabbi I know shortly after that row saying uh, he knew that I was um, philo-Semitic, uh, which, to be honest, wasn't even a phrase I'd um, even heard of before then. <laughs> uh, and the reason he did that was because, you know, I, I have spent many years working in uh, security policy and uh, an education policy and, and have always been uh, friends of the Jewish community. And as I also said, and as, as indeed uh, we're doing this interview today um, on the birthday of Israel, a big supporter of Israel. Yom Ha'atzma'ut, Israel, 72 years old. And by the way, there's a book recommendation. You may have uh, read it. A fellow philo-Semite. In fact, I'm not even sure how you pronounce it. It's a word that's so rarely used. I hesitated for that reason. (laughs) In comparison to the word anti-Semitic, which is used about every 10 seconds, uh, like a sort of giant megaphone, whether you like it or not. Nick Timothy, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. The best guests and their most heartfelt views. A relay of their missions to a worldwide audience. Hi, it's Johnny again, just popping in at the end of this one. 100 episodes along and I'm proud that it's fast become the podcast of record. This is coverage of the Jewish and Israeli world that just doesn't get properly aired in mass media. And I'm not ashamed to ask for your help. A one-off donation is always gratefully received to support my efforts, but a monthly donation really gets our service off the ground. Your donation can also be made with gift aid, and it's so easy to do, just click on this, donorbox.org slash jgpodcast. That's donorbox.org slash jgpodcast. Are you in? Please share my series with your friends and... Thank you for listening.